to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. And will you pray with me? God of all ages, for the story of light bursting forth from darkness, we give thanks. Wake us once again to the splendor of this miracle, Christmas. Amen. And if you happen to uh, still be standing, uh, please be seated. I want to begin by saying Merry Christmas, Pearl Church. Merry Christmas on this beautiful, white, snowy second day of Christmas. I'm grateful that we can safely gather and consider together this important part of our sacred story, the birth of Jesus. To begin this morning, I'd like to provide some context for Matthew's gospel by beginning with the last book in the Hebrew scriptures according to Jewish tradition. Uh, so you see, many of us have Bibles in which the last several books of the Hebrew scriptures include the minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, through the list. And the last of those books is Malachi. And so in our English translations, we usually go from Malachi and we turn to the next page and suddenly we're in Matthew. But in the Jewish rendering of scripture, the last book in the Hebrew scriptures is actually the book of Chronicles. Isn't that interesting? Chronicles. As the title explains, Chronicles provide us <laughs> a chronicle. And this particular chronicle in the book of Chronicles lists out kings in the line of Judah. And so besides some interesting stories, there is a lot of so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so who begot so-and-so. And it just goes on and on and on. And that you see is called a genealogy. Uh, genealogies exist to help humans fall asleep. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kidding. In all seriousness, in ancient thinking, familial lines meant a whole lot. And so Israel, a nation that grew out of the 12 sons of Jacob and eventually became the 12 tribes of Israel, meant something really, I would even say particularly special, hundreds of years later during the time of Jesus. And so, for example, if a Jew could be directly connected to one of those 12 tribes, well, that would be like being connected to royalty. Kind of like Elizabeth, mother of John the Baptist, who we're told is in the line of the great high priest Aaron. And any Jew looking to live a life uh, in and around the temple, well, they would have been very fortunate, extremely fortunate. Maybe we could even say providentially fortunate to be in the genealogy of the great high priest Aaron. Just as, for example, any Jew looking to live life as a king, 
to potentially become the king of Israel would have been fortunate, uh, maybe even uh, providential, we could say, to find themselves in the genealogy of Judah. I mean, it's about Judah that Jacob prophesied, you are a lion and the scepter. Think, think king here. Judah, you are the lion and the scepter, and the scepter will not depart from you. And so you see kingship is prophesied upon the line, the tribe, the genealogy of Judah. Uh, with this context in mind, Second Chronicles is the last book in the classical ordering of the Hebrew scriptures. It's a summary of kings in the line of Judah. It was written around the time that Israel was in exile in Persia. So brief history lesson here. As a reminder, Assyria conquered Israel. At the time, Israel had been divided into two nations, Israel and Judah. And so Assyria conquered Israel, and then Babylon came in and conquered Assyria, who eventually conquered Judah. So it goes Assyria to Babylon, and then finally Persia comes around and eventually conquers Babylon. So by the time we get to Jesus, the life of Christ, the people of Israel have been scattered and battered and dominated by one empire after the next, after the next, after the next. And despite all of this living under foreign empires, Israel continued to have its stories, continued to have its genealogies. Israel continued to have its immense hope for a king to rise up out of the tribe of Judah and to set Israel free. Now, I tell you all of this is context for the final words in the Hebrew scriptures, which are found in 2 Chronicles chapter 36. And they read, Thus says King Cyrus of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And God has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. And that's it. The end. That's how the Hebrew scriptures conclude. They conclude with a book of genealogy about kings in the line of Judah concluding with a foreign king declaring, whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him, let him go up. The end. Interest peaked, hope set, and the question being asked, who will be the person from the line of Judah who will go up into Jerusalem to build God a house? Answer? Well, it must be a person who looks like a king, Maybe like Saul, uh, this person will be tall and strong and handsome. And of course, this person must be a warrior, like, for example, David, able to crush all of our enemies. And of course, this king must be a sage, probably like Solomon, before whom all the world's leaders will bow. I'll tell you what, it's going to be some king, perhaps the king of kings and lord of lords from Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez. And, and I could go on and, and on, but I, I won't. I think you get the point. Matthew is being very clear here, right? Hey, you're looking for a king in the line of Judah who will build God a house? Okay, we'll get this. Matthew gives his genealogy, concluding with these words. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. In the very next verse, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, reads, Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. After setting our expectations for this Jesus, Matthew then writes about Jesus. Virgin birth, uh, the visit by the great angel Gabriel, a bright star leading magi to Jesus' bedside. All the while, Herod attempts to kill the child. And all of this builds into the narrative about the kind of person who we think can bring about Israel's salvation. This person must, must be strong like Saul. This person must be powerful like David. This person must be affluent like Solomon. With all of these expectations in mind, in just two chapters, Matthew then fast-forwards from infant Jesus to grown man Jesus. And Matthew tells us that this man is baptized. He is washed by John the Baptist. He's then tempted in the wilderness. And following his baptism and temptation, with our expectations at an all-time high for, for King Jesus to rule, to crush, to dominate, to do all of the things that we know kings of empires do. Matthew tells us that Jesus goes out into the countryside where he simply, merely, humbly, provocatively begins to call. Come, come and follow after me. Well, what does it mean to follow after Jesus? Well, as we continue to read about Jesus through Matthew's lens, Jesus preaches his first sermon in which God's blessing, he says, is upon the least, the poor, the sorrowful, the hurting. Those are people who belong in God and who are especially blessed by God. And in that same sermon, Jesus talks about trusting in God's goodness and in God's care. And then Jesus goes out and eats with the quote-unquote sinful, and he touches the quote-unquote unclean, and he forgives those who feel guilty by their lives, and he subverts those in power with stories and, and provocative questions. And on the night he's arrested, one of his disciples pulls out a sword and lops off some guy's ear. And Jesus says, put your sword back in its place, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Those are interesting words, aren't they? Honestly, those are very unkingly-like words. They're at least very unkingly-like 
actions. I, I mean, it's always been through the history of humankind throughout millennia. It's always been bigger swords, bigger bombs, bigger walls, bigger empires. And yet Jesus says, no, that won't do it. Just as a stronger, more beautiful, more affluent person will not do it, cannot do it. After being crucified by the religiously and politically privileged, Jesus is resurrected. And what is his message? Well, in most stories about revolution, it is a call to arms. And when a leader is raised from the dead, it's all about revenge. But not according to the resurrected Jesus. In the story, Jesus, who is resurrected, declares, do not be afraid. And... Listen to these revolutionary words. Jesus, who is resurrected, declares, peace be with you. Do not be afraid, and peace be with you. Do not be afraid, and peace be with you. Matthew then concludes his book with these words. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, we need to be very careful in how we hear these words, often referred to as Jesus' great commission. Many of us have been taught that these are colonial words. Go out and force the world into Christ following. In fact, that became the message throughout millennia, believe or else. And even today for many Christians on Christmas morning, that is still what it means. Believe in this story, our story or else. And suddenly Jesus' gospel is no longer different. It's just more of the same, more swords, more bombs, more walls, more violence, more tribalism. Although ironically and tragically now it's often done in Jesus' name by those who proclaim to follow after Christ. But on the second day of Christmas, I want to invite us to no longer be fooled to no longer be tricked by that narrative. There is nothing revolutionary about more swords, more bombs, and more walls, nor is that the spirit of Christmas. According to Matthew, the spirit of Christmas is located in a child who grows into an adult, who eats with the sinful, touches the unclean, forgives those who feel guilty about their lives, subverts those in power with stories and provocative questions, who, and who at the end of his life invites, will you reflect me? Will you embody my life? Will you become my way of being in this world? Will you be marked by love? And to those who say, yes, I'll try, there must be a better way to live life in this world. Well, Peter writes in his first book, chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, Come to Jesus, a living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house. Become a holy priesthood and offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
you see, according to Peter, life lived in Jesus' love creates a human cathedral, a human cathedral within which the divine dwells. And it's here that we've come full circle. Remember the end of the Hebrew scripture, 2 Chronicles chapter 36, thus says King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he's charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever among you of all of his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. After reading these words just a little bit earlier in my sermon, I asked, what do we imagine about this person who is to go up and build a temple? And I think, like Israel, we have many of the same things in mind. Someone strong, someone powerful, someone beautiful, someone affluent. But what if this person isn't strong or beautiful or wealthy in the ways that our society defines these things? And, and what if this person is actually incredibly strong and wonderfully beautiful, but for very different reasons, for example, by being inclusive and forgiving and loving? And what if this person isn't even building a temple comprised of costly stone and precious gold? What if this person who goes up to build a temple is building a temple that's comprised of people who find common ground despite all of their difference in love? I'd like to conclude this morning by showing you a couple paintings. Of the first that we're going to bring up here is a painting of the Nativity by Giotto. Uh, Giotto is the late 13th, early 14th century Italian artist. Uh, the work here is titled Nativity, Birth of Jesus. I, I love this painting. It features a simple yet elegant scene that has the baby Jesus and the Virgin Mary at, at the center of the canvas. Overhead, we see a band of, of angels celebrating the birth of the Messiah, while we have shepherds and magi and, and even a nameless woman far over on the left, along with some livestock gathered around at the bottom. Uh, perhaps you've not seen this particular rendering of the nativity, but you've probably all seen the nativity, and I just love the nativity. The nativity is an image of the soul, the spirit of Christmas. And I think it's a foreshadowing of the kind of world that Jesus intended to reveal. A world where, where men and women, uh, angelic beings and human ones, wealthy and wise magi, poor and hardworking shepherds and common folk gather together around a child who helps them to see that love is greater than all of their differences. And I think there's another famous painting image for us to consider that is much the same as nativity. Uh, this painting that you're about to see is da Vinci's famous painting of the Last Supper. Here around the table are followers and betrayers. Here around the table are fishermen and tax collectors. Here around the table are Galileans and Judeans. What is this picture? Well, you see, in one way, it's merely another picture of nativity. 
It's a grown-up rendering of Christmas. It's a table that gives rise to a temple comprised of human flesh in which we care about one another and share in life together with every single person. That, you see, is a picture of Christmas. A Christmas we long for and a Christmas that will actually change the world. May it be so. For Christmas is the season of miracles, and we are in desperate need of miracles today. Let us pray. God of all ages, for the story of light bursting forth from darkness, we give thanks. Wake us once again to the splendor of this miracle Christmas. In Christ's name, I ask these things. Amen. that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.